Hello and welcome to episode four of Monsters Walk With Us. If you are listening, I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in. I had a very small and humble goal when I decided to launch this, that if I could get just 100 people to listen, that I'd be really, really happy with that. And as of the time of this recording, we have 75 streams. Oh my God. I can't believe it. I'm blown away. And I just want to say thank you so much. I'm really having fun. I'm going to keep it going. I have new episodes getting recorded and edited. So stay tuned if you have ideas or if there's anything you want to let us know. The email is in the description description box below. It is hidden period monsters period walk at gmail.com. For today's episode, I again have a guest, Mikey. Why don't you tell everyone how we know each other? Uh, Let me first off say that's so awesome. I'm I'm floored. Yeah, that's incredible. My name is Mikey and we met uh, through my partner, Fernando. And I believe we met in Chester for the first time, right? At the time that we met, Fernando was living above a funeral home. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Important distinction, they did not prepare bodies at this location. It was viewings only. So we've known each other. Well, me and Fernando together for four, so I'll say four. Four years. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. That would make sense. Yeah. (laughs) And I thought that it would be really fun to just have like a big gay episode. Yeah. Uh, as we <laughs> are both members of the community and it with just everything right now, I thought it would be a nice change of pace to cover something within the LGBTQ plus community. Very it's cool. Big gay episode, all the fan thwarps. I can't thwart my fan because of the mic, but Thwart. in spirit, I'm thwarping my fan. <laughs> The resources I used in this case are the documentary Paris is Burning, which if you haven't seen, you need to watch. And I know that you haven't watched it, so I won't spoil it, Um, but we are going to talk about it a bit. So you'll have some frame of reference going in. I used Wikipedia. I used an article on New Now Next by Christopher Rudolph called The Mystery of Dorian Corey. I used an article from Atlas Obscura by Julianne Benton. An article by Jeannie Russell Kassendorf called The Drag Queen Had a Mummy in Her Closet, and a YouTube video by Caitlin Doty, awesome channel, and it is called Ask a Mortician. It has to do with today's episode will contain discussion of transphobia, homophobia, murder, and improper disposal of human remains. Let's set the scene. It's 1980s New York, and the city's reputation is pretty much that it's filthy and that there's a lot of crime. Mayor Ed Koch repeatedly warned that the filth, crime, and racial tensions were weakening the city, and he decided that he would put a high priority on rebuilding neighborhoods and infrastructure. And the biggest result of that was gentrification. Mm. As a result of the investments into these little corners of the neighborhoods and converting housing to make it more attractive to people who are more wealthy which means that people who had more money moved in, started to raise the cost of living, and eventually start to transform these communities away from what they were originally. So let's keep it real. Koch is actively oppressing people of color and poor people in his efforts to, quote, revitalize the city. Also at this time is the Central Park Five case, where five young African-American men were accused of rape and sentenced and jailed. And later, 
found to be innocent due to DNA evidence. Oh my God. Um, it's, it, it's really, if you don't know about that case, it is just really awful. I won't go too into it, but one thing I will say is that Donald Trump pushed for the death penalty in this case, the Central Park Five, even though it had not been used in New York for some time, and took out a full page ad in the New York Times, even after they had been cleared, saying that they, he still believed that they were guilty and they still should get the death penalty. Oh, he went fully out of his way. He's, and this is like the 80s. So he's all we all know he's always been a piece of shit. But this yeah. is, you know, just goes back to he is a white supremacist and a racist. Right. Who? Yes. Like we needed the proof. Yeah, we, we know. We've been nonsense. <laughs> Thank you for the tea, but we knew the truth. <laughs> exactly. So in the 80s, homelessness is becoming a huge problem in New York City. And the city has not invested any resources into providing housing, mental health services, or any of the things that we know will actually impact homelessness. The city is going about this in uh, the same way that many major cities, including Denver, still handle homelessness, which is by doing sweeps and forcing homeless people who have set up camps to move. And basically, they just have to take their things and find a new camp. It's not a solution. We're just pushing people around and continuing to marginalize them. The crack epidemic is also hitting New York really hard. And there are a lot of crimes occurring on the subways. There are violent assaults happening. There are muggings. There's just, it's the New York City subway in the 80s and it's a hot mess. This is actually how the See Something, Say Something campaign gets developed because as New Yorkers, we both know, if you see something, you typically don't say something. You just mind your fucking business and keep it moving. Keep it pushing. You just, (laughs) you look straight ahead. You don't look at anyone. You just look through them and you move. So that's also happening. And they're really pushing for people to start to speak out and they want to transform the subway system to be something better. Well, that's good. (laughs) It would have been good if it worked, right? Yeah. (laughs) The last time I was on the subway, I still did not feel safe just for the record. The city also outlaws discrimination against gay and lesbian people in matters of employment and housing in 1986. Did that stop it from happening? Absolutely not. But on the books, there is a law reflecting that gay people deserve equal rights in those two arenas. Our gay ancestors paved this road for us. There was so much fighting that they had to do. Oh my God, 100%. In 1989, Like, I can't even imagine the open discrimination, the open hate, the things that they had to live through just to be themselves and be out or not out and just survive. I I don't think I have that strength. Respect to the gay elders, because every right that we have, we owe to y'all. Definitely. In 1989, Koch is defeated by David Dinkins. Then Dinkins defeats Giuliani, who we also know to be a huge piece of shit. Yeah. Who from New York doesn't hate Rudy Giuliani? (laughs) That's the T right there. (laughs) So David Dinkins becomes the city's first ever black mayor. Crime begins a 15-year decline during his administration, but there is still a high level of unemployment. It's actually the highest level of joblessness in New York City since the Great Depression. There is a lot of racial strife 
There is a riot in Crown Heights in 1991, and the city is still very tense. It's still not the city that we would come to know in the 2000s. Yeah. Or when Times Square had its huge renovation and became a safe tourist spot. Because at this time, Times Square is filled with sex shops and, you know, places you can go into a booth and have a private show. That is really the pockets of the city that the gay community is able to move in freely because those businesses and those business opportunities for some folks in the LGBT community, that's what they have. And that's what they are going to take. So let's talk about Paris is Burning. Paris is Burning is a 1990 American documentary directed by Jenny Livingston. It's filmed in the mid to late 80s, and it focuses on the ball culture of New York City, specifically the Black, Latino, gay, and transgender communities involved in the ball scene. Because Critics, that was, there were more people of color back then, right? The ball scene, when it originated, was pretty much solely people of color, There would maybe occasionally be some white people coming through, but for the most part, it really was people of color started this movement. They fed this movement and they're the ones who continued the tradition. They had a place to express themselves. Exactly. And at this time, a lot of people of color were not welcome at some of the gay bars or people who were transgender or people who were lesbians. They were not welcome at the white male gay bars. They're being marginalized by society and further marginalized by their own community. White male gays do better, please. The, ugh, it's disgusting. Yep. So this film is considered to be an invaluable documentary of the ball scene and kind of the end of the golden age of the ball scene. In the documentary, you see things are starting to change and things become a lot more mainstream once Madonna makes the song Vogue. That's kind of what blows up the ball scene and and it moves further away from its roots and it starts to become a little bit more racially blended. In 2016, this film was actually preserved in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress because it is culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant for the culture dating. And the title is from the Paris is Burning Ball, hosted annually by Paris Dupree, who appears in the film. Oh, I always wondered where the name came from. Mm -hmm. So Paris is a person? Paris is a person. Jenny Livingston becomes aware of the ball scene when she is working at a local newspaper and studying at NYU. She's living in Greenwich Village, which is gay. Yeah, the the center. Yes. (laughs) She was taking photos of people in Washington Square Park, and she saw two young men dancing. She was very intrigued by their movements and the slang that they were using because she'd never heard either. Okay. She asked them what they were doing, and they said they were voguing. She's curious. She goes to her first ball, which is a little mini ball at the Gay Community Center on 13th Street, and she films the ball as an assignment for her class. At this ball, she sees Venus Extravaganza for the first time. She also starts to spend time with other big people in the scene, such as Willie Ninja, who teaches her a little bit about ball culture and voguing. Who's been on Top Model. Yes. He, she starts researching African-American history, literature and culture, and reading about queer people and the nature of subculture, because this is a queer subculture. 
And it's completely new to her. And it's completely new to her. And it's very niche. A lot of white gays probably didn't even know about the ball scene. She starts to do audio interviews with several people from the balls. Venus and Danny Extravaganza, Dorian Corey, Junior LaBeja, Octavia St. Laurent, and others. The main self-funded shoot was the Paris is Burning Ball. And she takes that footage. She works with Jonathan Oppenheim to edit together a trailer. And they get grants so that they can go ahead and make this movie. They get grants from the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York State Council on the Arts, the Paul Robeson Fund, and the Jerome Foundation. Finally, uh, they have one huge donor, Madison Davis Lacey, who is the head of a public TV station in New York City, sees the trailer and decides to put up $125,000 to fund the movie. Well, hello. They still needed some extra money to edit the movie. And that came from an executive producer, Nigel Finch, at a BBC Two TV show called Arena. And there's some follow-up to the movie. They want to tell the story of Voguing's entry into mainstream culture and to talk about Willie Ninja's success as a dancer, which is what led him to be on America's Next Top Model, Mm -hmm. and the murder of Venus Extravaganza, which remains unsolved to this day. I did not know that. Yeah. They also do a longer interview with Dorian Corey, interviewing Dorian about specific phrases that are used in the ball scene that are not well known. And some of these phrases are executive realness, shade, (laughs) and reading. I've heard those before. The film is about 78 minutes long. They had 75 hours of footage to edit. Holy shit. It's that it's speaking from just editing the audio on the last couple episodes. And it's such a nightmare to do video and audio. In my opinion, that was a labor of love. You're like, no, I can't do that. I could not do that. (laughs) It took seven years to complete the movie because they got funding from so many different sources. And when the movie was completed, they needed more money for the music clearances Because in all the ballroom scenes, there was music playing. Oh, my God. So it it costs almost as much to clear the music as to shoot and edit the whole movie. Tell me they made some sort of profit on this thing. (laughs) You know, I didn't look at that. I would assume yes, just because it's so well known. Paris is Burning really shed a lot of light on gender roles the gay subcultures that exist, the ball subcultures that exist within the ball scene, and the human stories of the people involved in the balls. It talks about how the relationships are formed on the scene and talking about houses and drag mothers and legendary children. It really explaining it, it very straightforwardly. And also, this is how it is. And if you don't like it, you can leave. It is a very strong ownership of their identity and the ball scene. One of the biggest focuses in the movie was the focus on houses and how houses serve as surrogate families because many of the younger ball walkers have been rejected by their biological families for their gender expression and their sexual orientation. 
So a lot of these kids in the ball scene have nowhere to go. And it's up to an older figure to take them in and and mentor them. So Pose really took inspiration from here, right? Pose is an excellent depiction of this same point in time and is directly based off Paris's burning. So some of the character names and some of the characters and one of the episodes you'll see is inspired by Paris's burning and the people involved. I'm I'm feeling it. Like (laughs) the film also looks at how the subjects of the film deal with the issues in their lives, AIDS, racism, extreme poverty, violence, and homophobia. Some of the people interviewed in Paris's burning become sex workers to support themselves, which is absolutely okay, should be legal, and does not invite any poor behavior or negative consequences. It's the oldest profession, and people need to get over it, in my opinion. No, I completely agree. One thing that's brought up a lot in the movie is how a lot of people in the balls will shoplift clothing because they don't have the money to buy it, but they want a label, and they want for a night to escape the reality of their lives And just have a really glamorous, fun time at the ball. Everybody (laughs) wants to be Cinderella. I go to the ball and be the queen. Yeah, when I do drag, I want to look glamorous. Yeah. A lot of subjects in the documentary talk about saving money for sex reassignment surgery. A few have completely transitioned and others receive breast implants without undergoing surgery. And all of those are A-OK representation of trans and gay people because everybody's identity is different and everyone is going to express themselves differently. I'm actually glad you brought that up because I'm not actually, I don't understand, like people say like top surgery and I don't know what that means exactly. I can explain that. Top surgery is typically for people who are assigned female at birth, but are male. Mm -hmm. Or maybe people who are gender non-conforming or non-binary. And what top surgery means is that they're going to get the mammary glands or the breasts removed. Okay. So that's top surgery, top half of your body. That's what I thought it was, but I I didn't want to be ignorant about it, you know? Yeah. Everyone listening, it's always okay to ask questions and get more educated. And there's a lot of resources out there. And if you're not sure where, email in the description and I will send you some stuff. I promise. There's no stupid questions. There's only stupid people that do not ask their questions and continue to live in ignorance. I love that. Let's talk about Dory and Corey. I want to start with a few of my favorite quotes from Paris is Burning by Dorian. My very favorite quote is, everybody wants to leave an impression behind them, some kind of mark on the world. Then you think, you left a mark on the world if you just get through it, and a few people remember your name. Then you left a mark. You don't have to bend the whole world. I think it's better to just enjoy it. Pay your dues and enjoy it. If you shoot an arrow and it goes real high, hooray for you. Wow. It's it's just such a good message. Yeah, that that. That's deep. Yeah. I like that. Another thing that Dorian says when talking about the kids in the ball scene shoplifting or doing what they can to survive, maybe turning to sex work. Dorian says, in New York City, you work or you starve. Legal or otherwise, you have to find work to sustain yourself. Dorian Corey was a famous drag queen in the New York ball scene. 
in today's terms, we would probably refer to Dorian as a transgender woman. Got it. Her style is really old school, glamorous, Vegas showgirl, beads and feathers, and elaborate costumes. Dorian was born in Buffalo, New York, and that's where she first started doing drag, honey. Oh, girl, that must have been tough. Uh, Right? The the (laughs) bravery to do that in the 80s in Buffalo. Yeah. I can't imagine that. Good thing she got down there. Dorian works at a department store in Buffalo creating window displays before eventually moving to the city to study at Parsons. She is devastatingly witty, wry. She's very caring and she is a born entertainer. She was meant for the stage. In May 1993, Dorian is crowned Entertainer of the Year at Sally's Grammy Night. Sally's was her local bar where she was a regular. Okay. At one point, she even traveled with a live boa constrictor that she used to dance with on stage. Bad bitch. Yes. On Grammy's night, there is a picture of her on the internet and she's wearing white fur, white gown, and pearls. She's serving it. She's she's giving everything. And more. Yes. And a snake, a boa constrictor. <laughs> It's all that and a snake skin. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) One of the queens from the scene says later that after her cousin shot her lover, they brought the gun to Dorian and Dorian bought it from them. Dorian was very much a mentor. She would bring young queens and young kids into her family. She would kind of make sure that they were taken care of. She was a mother at the house of Corey. She said, quote, you lend money to your friends, not a lot of money, and sometimes you give advice, and if someone gets evicted or something happens, maybe you take them in. And that's her explaining to Joan Rivers what the role of a house mother is and what what they do and what need they fulfill for the kids in their house. That's pretty mainstream, talking to Joan Rivers. Joan Rivers on 1991, girl. (laughs) Yeah, Dorian is very matter of fact when interviewed in Paris is Burning about kids have to shoplift and they need to do what they need to do. And in this scene, any kids in the house are referred to as the children. Three years after Paris is Burning is released, Dorian dies of AIDS-related complications at age 56. All of her drags were passed down to her friend and caregiver at the end of her life, a drag queen who was also in the scene, Lois Taylor. Lois is going to sell some of the drags to a couple straights who are going to a Halloween party. So they're looking for capes and other things that Dorian had. Dorian was a seamstress. So Dorian had made some really amazing costumes. They make their way through Dorian's crowded apartment to the back room, which is the drag room. And in the back of the room, there is a long hanging bag lying on the floor. It looks like it's from the 60s. It has this dark olive green plaid pattern all over it. And it's extremely heavy. So Lois and the straights, they don't even try to open it. They realize they're not going to be able to move it. Lois tells one of the straights go grab a pair of scissors. They bring it back and they cut the bag open. The bag splits open and a puff of dust flies out and a foul odor emerges from the bag. They call the cops immediately. Lois 
because she's like, I am not getting framed for this shit. These straight people were here with me the whole time. They're my straight witnesses. The cops are going to listen to them. Yeah, I, this is I. This is what has to happen. Newspapers slowly start reporting a mummy found in a suitcase, but without any mention of Dorian. It's like she doesn't exist. Right. Then the story gets picked up on the gay trans club scene and rumors start flying. So the balls, everybody's talking. Everybody's. Did you hear about this? Did you hear about this? And it's, everywhere. it's a big community. So it's flying pretty quick. It comes out that the man in the suitcase had been shot once in the head and was in boxers and a t-shirt and the clothing was pretty worn away. Page six, the New York Post gossip column picks it up as well. Just a quick PS, the New York Post is trash. Been trash, gonna stay to be trash. Just let's just put it where it is. Cops allegedly tell page six that the body was in the bag somewhere between seven months and 20 years. Oh my God. What a window. Wow. Like how, how do you get that window? Well, let's talk about it. Yeah. The man in the bag is identified as Robert Bobby Worley. Bobby is a black man born on December 18th, 1938. Bobby is one of seven kids born in North Carolina, where most of his family still lives. Bobby and his brother, Fred, both moved to New York in the late 50s. But Fred didn't even know that Bobby was also in New York at first. Bobby had a prior conviction for rape and assault and had served three years in prison. After he got out of Sing Sing, he went to visit his brother around 1966. Fred says that after Bobby got out of prison, Bobby's drinking was a real problem. And Bobby had been sort of seeing a woman that lived in his complex or in his building right by him and had, quote, roughed up her kid. And after the mother found out, she flipped her shit. Justifiably. So. Thank Absolutely. you. Yeah. And threatened to call the cops. Bobby hightailed it out of there and was never heard from again. So that's the story. <laughs> so that's what his brother knows. Okay. Police determine that Bobby's remains had been wrapped in imitation leather and then plastic bags. And the article by Jeannie Russell Kassendorf has a lot of gory details about Bobby's remains. I'm not going to talk about them. I really found the discussion and the comments from the detective callous and disgusting. So it was just a lot of unnecessary detail talked about in a very casual, off-the-cuff kind of way. Got it. It felt very disrespectful. So there are some clues found with the body. They find quite a few vintage beer can lids. And beer, back in the day, had a pull top, almost similar to when you like open a container of sour cream and there's that plastic that you have to pull off to open it. Got it. Beer was wrapped in the same, beer was sealed in the same way, but with metal. So they had these metal top tab things and that's how they knew that the body had been in there for some time. These clues suggest that Bobby has been dead at least 15 years. And nobody knew, like how? Nobody in Dorian's life had ever met Bobby or heard her mention him at all. 
He's just a mystery man. That's crazy. Bobby's brother, Fred, says when asked that he knew that Bobby had, quote, a thing for transvestites, which was the common language used at that time before the phrases that we use now, like trans, non-binary, genderqueer, more educated phrasing that we use now didn't exist back then. People in the ball scene speculated that Dorian had shot Bobby during a failed robbery or that maybe Bobby had attacked Dorian and Bobby died as a result of self-defense on Dorian's part. At any rate, we can be certain that a black trans drag queen who lived in a very poor and dangerous part of Harlem in the 60s or 70s was not going to be viewed as a victim or treated with respect by cops. Yeah, if they would have found out, they would have immediately arrested her. Yes. New York Magazine found out that Bobby had called his brother Fred while drunk shortly before he disappeared and not understanding that he had called Fred because Bobby was very drunk, he started talking to someone named Dorian. So Bobby thinks he's called Dorian, but Bobby has actually called his brother Fred. Okay. Fred says it sounds like Bobby fucked up in their relationship. Uh And was trying to smooth it over and maybe trying to sweet talk a little bit. Fred also says that he believes it's extremely likely that Bobby could have become violent with Dorian. And while nobody could say for sure, he thinks, yeah, it's possible Bobby could have gone too far. So he had the capabilities of doing that. Right. And he had been previously convicted and imprisoned for a violent assault. So... We know that his anger was a problem and we know that he was drinking a lot. We can assume that there something happened between the two of them. It's pretty obvious this wasn't a random robber. It wasn't a one-sided thing. No. I think the phone call is really what seals that for me. They obviously knew each other. Yeah. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> Lois Taylor tells reporters that Dorian had written a short story And in the story, the protagonist, a transgender woman, kills her lover because he had pressured her into a sex change and she wanted revenge. All this is sounding very familiar. Lois also says that Dorian's mother knew about Dorian's breast implants and Dorian's life in the city. But nobody else in Dorian's family knew. So Dorian maintained letter snail mail communication with her mom. Her mom took the secret of Dorian's truth to her grave and her family still has no idea what happened to Dorian and believes that Dorian passed as the assigned male at birth that they had known growing up. So they believe that Dorian died in a male presenting identity. And when asked how Dorian died, Lois makes the decision to lie and say that it was just pneumonia. Because when she called, she got Dorian's sister on the phone. She asked for Dorian's mother and was told that Dorian's mother was very ill. And the sister asked, oh, is this about my brother? And used Dorian's dead name. Yeah. Like, it's pretty obvious they didn't know when Dorian was sick and knew that it was towards the end. Dorian did not want Lois to contact her family. Still, even then, didn't want to reveal anything. Yeah. 
Sally's Two, the local bar that Dorian was regularly a performer at and won the Entertainer of the Year at, Mm -hmm. is directly across from the New York Times building, which is really crazy to picture now. Mm-hmm. If you've been to West 43rd Street and seen the New York Times building, impossible to imagine a gay bar in that area. <laughs> it's like right by Port Authority. It was like a big fuck you. to <laughs> Yeah. Dorian's friends, many of who were in Paris is burning, including Paris Dupree, are interviewed at a cafe next door. And they talk a lot about their shock when they heard about Bobby's remains being found because they had no idea. And this is actually where one of the queens in the scene talks about their cousin shooting their lover and she and her cousin bringing the gun to Dorian and Dorian buying the gun from them. And this queen did not know that Bobby had been shot in the head. They kind of make the implication or or make the, um, they imply in the article that this is, must be the gun that was used to kill Bobby. To this day, nobody knows the true story of what happened. Dorian took the secret to her grave. And as much as there is a lot of speculation and and people have all these ideas, nobody can say for certain what exactly happened that led to the death of Bobby. Because it was so long ago. Yep. And nobody knew. Nobody in Dorian's life had ever heard the name Bobby or knew anything about him. That's so crazy. I can't even imagine anything like that happening now. That could never happen now, I feel like. There is still a lot of violence perpetrated against trans and non-binary people and disproportionately people of color. Mm -hmm. Um, Trans women of color are murdered at an alarmingly high rate. Yeah. So I think there is still things like this that are happening. But I think now maybe our culture has shifted to where if someone who is a person of color and is coming from a poor background, if they need to contact the police to report an assault, that maybe they would be treated with respect and as a victim and given the same respect and support that they would give a cisgender victim. I hope that we're closer to that now. Um, Certainly Mm -hmm. than we were in, in the late eighties when this happened, but it's, really, really sad that Dorian couldn't come forward and talk about whatever it was that happened. And as a result, Bobby's family will never really know. That That's the saddest part. That is the story of Dorian Corey and Bobby Worley. I have to say, I know that you're a Pose fan. I'm a huge Pose I'm fan. I'm sure now you've made the connection between why I picked this case. Yes. And the show. I mean... When you watch the show, it it makes you, if you haven't watched Paris is Burning, like you think it's about Candy and and that's, um, I can't can't remember her name, Um, Venus Extravaganza, I believe, is the the real person who's supposed to portray Candy. Yes. But they put Candy in the bag. At least that's what we think because they don't even show who's in the bag. Yeah. And so it's really enlightening to know everything because I, I didn't know it was a man that was found. I didn't know about how it was never solved. Any of that. I didn't Mm -hmm. know anything. So thank you. Yeah. (laughs) So we have a second case 
that we're actually going to talk about this week. And when we started talking about recording, you told me that you had a personal connection to a case, the murder of Venus Stewart. Tell us about your connection to this case. So I want to be very clear about this. Like I wasn't like friends with this person in real life. The only interaction I had with them was through Xbox Live. We Is that used, you gamed together? Yeah, we would play uh, Xbox uh, FPS, which is first person shooter for people who don't know about that. Um, me. <laughs> <laughs> mostly like Halo and Call of Duty. That okay. actually has context because, you know, it's part of the story. We would chat. He seemed really normal, cool dude, as much as I knew. Um, I fell off of Xbox Live Gaming. And when I came back to gaming, one of the first things uh, a mutual friend of ours said, his name is Ninja, his gamer tag. Uh, he told me, he's like, you didn't hear about, I don't remember his gamer tag because this is over a decade ago. So I couldn't you know. find it either. I did hear about someone else's gamer tag that I'll mention though. He met up with the other guy and they plotted and they killed his wife. I was like, what the fuck? I was like, that's crazy. I was like, that can't be true. And I immediately Googled it because I was like, that sounds like, you know, just some bullshit that anybody would just tell anybody like, you know, to play around with their friends. And I was gobstopped when it got smacked. <laughs> like I can't even, I'm stuttering right now because I, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I went back and I was like, holy shit, dude. I was like, I would have never thought that of that person. Right. What did you find out? Well, let's get into it. This occurred in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which I actually didn't believe was a real place until I met Mike six years ago. I just thought that was like a made up, like, you know, like a nonsense place. Mm -hmm. The story that we're talking about takes place in Colon Township. Outside Kalamazoo, Michigan is a smaller town. As of the 2000 census, the population was 3,400 people. In April 2010, 32-year-old Venus Stewart goes outside to check the mail. She would never be seen alive again. There were clear signs of a scuffle, and her wallet and phone were still inside the house. She is reported missing by her parents immediately on April 26, 2010. Venus was born August 4th, 1997 in Coldwater, Michigan, to Larry and Therese. Venus graduates Bronson High School in 1992 and goes on to receive a bachelor's degree in law enforcement at Western Michigan University. It sounds like Venus wanted to go into law enforcement, but then realized that she didn't like guns. And that was kind of a deal breaker. That's so kind of a problem. She decided to get a job working for PNC Bank. And she works at PNC Bank in their fraud department for many years. Venus meets Doug Stewart in 2002. They were married four days later after two dates. Venus's parents were very taken aback by this. It's yeah, that's so pretty fast. sudden. That's very fast. And I got married really fast. I met Mike in July. And by the following February, we got married. And that was considered very quick by pretty much everyone I knew. You're, you're not even in a gay relationship. No, right? I'm not even with a woman, which would totally explain, like, we got to get the moving truck and we got to get the cats and all the lesbian stereotypes. Venus's parents are 
kind of shocked. They know Venus to be pretty level-headed and it doesn't sound like Venus makes a lot of rash decisions, but as Venus tells them, they just fell in love really fast and she thought it was the one. Doug Stewart is a veteran. He is kind of an average looking white dude with brown hair. They end up moving into a house together and they have two daughters. Venus loves being a mom. And there was a lot of discussion about what a great mom she was, how much she loved her daughters and how much she enjoyed spending time with them and being a mom. But Venus has to get back to work at PNC Bank because she is the primary breadwinner. While she is working full-time at PNC Bank, Doug has been working part-time at Pizza Hut. And playing video games all day long. (laughs) Doug leaves Pizza Hut and becomes a stay-at-home dad. There we go. His job is now full-time taking care of the girls. But while they're gone, he starts getting into Xbox Live. Mm -hmm. He starts spending hours and hours every day playing. And he entirely stops looking for work. Yeah. Venus is not amused because she's busting her ass to pay the bills. And he's not really contributing. It sounds like things in the marriage are starting to crack and not be as perfect. And in May 2009, Venus decides, I want a fresh start. I want to go someplace exciting. And she starts looking at a few different cities that have like a Six Flags or a huge water park or some big attraction because she wants to start doing that with the kids on the weekends. So she looks at maybe they could live by Disney World or Disneyland or... A great mom. Yeah. They end up moving to Newport News, Virginia, which is where there's a large Bush Gardens. And there's quite a few videos of them at Bush Gardens as a family, having these family memories. They pack up and move to Newport News and Doug finds work as a truck driver. Doug says that it's always been Venus's dream to live in a high-rise apartment. I'm going to just say that I don't think anyone's dream is to live with two kids in a ninth floor (laughs) walk-up. I don't think so either. Doug says that this year, May 2009, is the best year of their marriage and the best year of their lives together. According to Doug. According to Doug, yes. At this time, Venus gets baptized at the age of 30. And she becomes very religious. So according to Doug, everything is great, but Venus doesn't necessarily feel the same way. And they start to have more problems. They start to argue. They start to take breaks from each other, from their marriage. And it's pretty obvious it's not going well. They get separated after Venus takes the two girls and their dog and just goes back to Michigan without saying anything to Doug about it. So they were already separated. They were already separated. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. Venus's mom says part of the problem is that Doug was very immature and Venus just wasn't getting her needs met in terms of the financial support. I would also guess emotionally, if Doug is spending every free minute on Xbox Live, there's not a lot left for her either. No time for cuddling. 
And she probably has to do twice of the emotional labor for their kids. Yeah. Another reason that Venus decided to leave so abruptly is that she finds out that Doug may have been sexually abusing one of the children. Oh my God. Oh my God. So while they're going through this custody stuff, this is the stuff that Venus is trying to figure out and trying to deal with and see, can I bring this to court and what's then going to happen? And Venus had just had a win in court with the custody case. Back to April 2010, the day of Venus's disappearance, her father wakes up to the girls alone inside the house being very loud, unsupervised, which is very, very strange. I didn't even know he had kids. Yeah, because he never, never mentioned them. He never said like, oh, let me step out for a second and just check on the girls or something like that. Nothing like that. Because he probably never did that. It didn't seem like he is a super husband. We'll just put it like that. That's fair to say. Venus's dad goes outside to look for her and there is no sign of her. And he immediately calls the police. And usually when the police are called for an adult missing person, they require some amount of time to pass before they will file a missing persons report. Like three days, right? Sometimes it's 24 hours. Sometimes it's 48 hours. Sometimes it's 72. It depends on the state. The perspective of law enforcement is that this person is an adult and that they have every right to just go leave if that's what they want to do. Okay. There's a lot of problems, in my opinion, with that mindset and how it's applied to adult disappearances. And I certainly understand that we do have the freedom to disappear, but I think anytime someone does that and there's not something in their life that they would potentially be trying to escape... Yeah. That's suspicious. That needs to be taken into consideration. The fact that she had a whole family. And I have this asshole ex who's potentially abusing my kids that I'm in a custody battle with. Yeah. Those things actually make the cops, in this case, take it seriously. So they take the missing persons report right away. Well, good on them. They cordon off the area that they believe to be the crime scene. And they start to investigate. And of course, the first person they start looking into is Doug. But Doug has an airtight alibi because on the day of Venus's disappearance, Doug had paid bills in Newport News, Virginia in person by going into his lawyer's office and paying one of the secretaries for his bill. There was surveillance footage of him. So it seems impossible that he could be involved. Oh, shit. Venus's parents are sure that it's him. And they start to tell police about the numerous fights between Venus and Doug around custody and just around everything in their relationship because it really had fallen apart by the end. Police start searching and pretty soon after they get the report, they tell Venus's parents that they believe she is dead. And their focus has switched from we're going to try to find Venus alive to now we are looking for Venus's remains. They begin a search with volunteer rescuers and with scent dogs, and they have no luck. Doug is still insisting that he loves Venus and he hopes that she is found soon. But he also says that he's not upset because he believes that Venus was a runaway mom and just decided to abandon her children directly after winning this custody thing in court that was not going to go in his favor. He knew what he was going to say. Cops are still looking at Doug and they decide to go to Newport News to interview him and collect evidence. But 
The cops do not tell Doug that they are from Michigan. They team up with a local police officer from Newport News, and they let that police officer do all the talking, and they don't ever let Doug know that they're actually from Michigan. Doug thinks this is just a local cop. He doesn't know my relationship with her. I'm going to be able to say whatever, and he's not going to know the difference. Oh, shit. They really went for this man. They knew it was him pretty quick. Yeah. Police search his apartment. They take his computer but they don't find anything to show that Venus had been in the apartment since she left for Michigan. They also search Doug's truck, which is just filled with trash, like old fast food cups and dirty old French fries and all the crap that you could imagine to see in his car, papers, Mm -hmm. everything is in there. But they do find something of interest, which is a Walmart receipt for a tarp. Oh, And the interesting thing about this is that Doug lives in Newport News, Virginia, but the Walmart that the tarp was purchased at was in Ohio. One slip up. That's all they needed. Doug decides to move out of the family apartment and leaves behind all of the children's toys, all of the family pictures, and any personal family effects that were not his. Okay. The apartment calls Venus's parents and says, we have all this stuff that we think that you want. Do you want us to pack it up? We can ship it to you. And Venus's dad says, no, I want to go down there. And he goes and he packs up her things and the kids things. And he meets her neighbors and he hears a little bit about what her life was like there. He said that he never had the chance to see where she was living before. And sadly, he was now there after she's gone to just kind of pick up the pieces of Doug again being an absolute piece of shit and just abandoning everything. Jeez, poor guy. Doug is still working on getting custody of the girls. Ballsy. Because now they're staying with Venus's parents. And Doug doesn't like that. He thinks that he should have the girls because he is their father. And the girls and Venus's family and a bunch of protesters who showed up at the custody hearings believe that Doug is the reason that his daughters have no mom. And so there's protesters chanting at him, say that the Marines are ashamed of him and that Everyone knows it was him and he he should be embarrassed to be showing up in court to try to get custody. Doug had been at the law office, allegedly, on the day of Venus's disappearance. But when detectives go back again to interview and review more evidence, they learn that it was actually someone who was impersonating Doug who made the payment. Oh, shit. This person made no small talk. And rushed away the second they got the receipt. Okay. And there is surveillance footage of this. Cops are starting to realize that Doug probably had an accomplice who helped him to solidify his Virginia alibi while he was physically in Michigan. That's crazy. Police get Doug's phone records and it shows that he has been calling the same number repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly. There's just a ton of calls going from him to this number and vice versa. But they would have known that before, wouldn't they? Or or not until they like dwelled into more into it. That when they got the warrant for his truck Mm -hmm. and they found the 
receipt in his truck, mm-hmm. they were able to build a case to get a further reaching warrant for like his phone records. Oh, because there's certain things that you can limitations. Yep. Or my other thought is that if he and Venus were on the same phone plan, mm-hmm. they wouldn't have to get a warrant because Venus's parents could probably have given them the information or the company. Yeah. There are some cases where the phone company will not provide information to the police and the police have to get a warrant to get that information. And that has proven to be detrimental in missing person cases in the past, where if they had had the information about the triangulation of the cell phone or had a better idea of an area, things would have gone differently in some of these cases. That makes a change, man. Yes. There was one case that I had mentioned to someone where these two people are lost in the snow and they keep calling and keep calling, but um, they're in between three jurisdictions and they don't know where they are and the, the police can't figure out where they are. And every time they're calling, it's going to a different jurisdiction and the calls can't be traced because none of these three areas had the technology to trace a phone call. And how long ago was that? That was in the 2000s. Oh, come on. Yeah. So there's been a push now nationally for them to get that, that every place has the ability to triangulate a phone call. They find the calls are going to Ricky Spencer, who is a college kid living with his parents in Delaware. They get in touch with Ricky and Ricky admits that Doug asked him to help with the alibi. Police formally declare Venus dead. Police declared Venus dead, even without finding her remains. And prosecutors began to prepare their murder case against Doug. Finally. Doug pleads not guilty and actually says that he's surprised he was even arrested. Okay. (laughs) My eyebrow just went like up to the sky on that one. I was like, what? Doug is very much trying to portray, I'm innocent and this is all just, you've got it all confused. And it's okay. I understand. You got to look into me because I'm the husband. I get it. The prosecutors actually say that when they're on breaks outside of the courtroom in chambers or in waiting periods, Doug is trying to be chummy and friendly with them and just be one of the guys and make small talk. What an arrogant fuck. Can you imagine the disgust they must have felt? A lot of self-restraint. Right. The prosecution has videos from Walmart of Doug buying a tarp, shovel, gloves, and a hat at the Walmart in Michigan. The clerks easily remember him. Everyone that was working that night remembers him. He was probably talking to them. No, he was wearing shorts and a Hawaiian shirt and was dressed for warm weather. Oh, okay. Because he came from Virginia. Yeah. And now he's in Ohio where it's still cold. Oh my God. That's intelligent wearing something so conspicuous, right? They also remember him because he asks if they have lime. Lime? Lime. Uh, Why lime? I'm confused. I thought it was lye that you would need. Lime can absorb odors similar to baking soda. So lye would be for someone attempting to disintegrate remains. They also find out that Doug bought a track phone, but because Doug is a fucking idiot, he buys it on his credit card and saves the receipt. (laughs) (laughs) what this means is that they can instantly track the track phone yeah he's done because he's identified his card number to the 
phone's IP address or whatever it is, it's done. They are going to just act fully access all of his stuff. Yeah, he's fine. He thinks that it's a secret and that he's getting this burner phone that they're never going to find. But then he immediately, he doesn't even turn the phone on and he's fucked. Police use the GPS from the track phone to place him within five to seven miles of Venus's parents' house on the day of her disappearance. They also match a fingerprint from something they had found at the scene of the crime, which was a plastic wrapper from the tarp. Wow. There's evidence everywhere. At first, they thought it was garbage. And one of the forensic techs said, you know what, let's just take it and print it. Because there was not really a lot of signs of a scuffle outside of the house. The grass is messed up a little bit. There's a pink scrunchie on the ground. And that's it. They got the kids. Could have been them. Ricky Spencer is called to the stand. And at trial, he testifies that he met Doug on Xbox Live in 2008. Ricky and Doug are playing together six to 10 hours every day. Okay. So that's a lot of time. Yeah. They had never met in person, but they had a very strong connection. They would chat a lot and they started talking on the phone and they sort of build this friendship. I didn't even know they were friends. I thought we were just all like mutual people that played together. It's weird to me because to me in hindsight, it's pretty obvious that Doug wants to use Ricky for something. And Ricky is like 20 Like he doesn't know any better. He just wants to game and he thinks this is his friend. And in my opinion, I think that Doug probably groomed him a little bit and like, yeah, best buds, da da da. Ricky testifies that Doug always called them brothers from another mother. Oh, okay. So it shows that Doug was kind of pushing this close friendship with Ricky and putting a lot of time to that. Doug convinces Ricky to come visit in Newport News. So Ricky leaves his parents' house in Delaware and goes to Newport News on spring break from college. They meet in person on April 1st, 2010. So this is right before Venus disappears. So they've been talking for like two years now, right? Yeah. Doug and Ricky spend the break, the spring break visit, bachelor style. They hang out, they drink, they go to Bush Gardens, and of course they play Xbox Live. Yeah, of course. After a few days, Doug tells Ricky, I need to talk to you about something really important. Doug says, my wife is very abusive to our daughters and Mm -hmm. I need to go kill her. Oh my God. He spun the whole shit. Ricky is like, what the fuck? No, like, no, I'm not interested in that. Ricky actually testifies that his first words out of his mouth were, no, dude, fuck that. Good on him for that. First instinct, Ricky. Yeah. Still fuck it up. Yeah. Ricky is totally shocked. And Doug goes on to say, I need you to help me set up this alibi. I need you to pretend to be me. Wow. Ricky is like, I don't even want to talk about this with you, dude. I'm not doing it. I don't want to hear anything about this. Like, I'm no. Like you should. But keep in mind, Ricky is 20 and he's staying with Doug. So he can't really escape this situation. Oh, my God. Doug starts to guilt Ricky and keeps saying things and making up lies about how Venus is abusive. 
And so it starts with very vague, like Venus is abusive and that doesn't work for Ricky because there's other ways to deal with that. Yeah. And then he tells Ricky Venus would slap their daughters around and he was worried about his daughters with Venus. And he more and more of this until eventually he says to Ricky, you know, I caught Venus almost choking one of my daughters to death. And if I wasn't there, my daughter would die. And so at this point, he's been working on Ricky for a few days. Ricky doesn't know Venus. Ricky doesn't know anything about her. He only Mm -hmm. knows whatever he's heard from Doug over the last two years. And now that Venus is allegedly abusive, Ricky caves. He says, you know, I don't want these kids to be in danger. Mm -hmm. And he believes his friend. He believes Doug that the girls being with Venus is a danger to their life and safety. It sounds like Doug was a master of manipulation because he didn't even know him that long. Ricky testifies a little bit about how it was kind of weird to go visit someone that he didn't know from Xbox Live. And he didn't say this, but the implication is like not a girl. Like it's weird to go meet someone in person for Ricky because he's straight. So it's like he's not going to meet some chick. I literally have friends even now that I've known them for over a decade now. I've still never fucking met them. Right. And I, I, I don't really see not by myself. Maybe at like a gathering, you know, pre-COVID. In public, not like (laughs) I'm going to go stay at your house. Yeah. Yeah. Once Ricky agrees, Doug says, okay, it's time to plan. And takes him to a park so that they can talk about and plan the murder. Doug asks Ricky, you know how to kill someone without leaving any evidence, right? You know how to kill someone quick, right? And Ricky is kind of confused By this conversation, I don't think he understands what Doug's going for. Mm -hmm. So Ricky says, I guess you could use a gun. And Doug says, no, you can't. That's going to be too much blood. You can't use a gun. There's going to be too much evidence. You got the forensics, blah, blah, blah. And Ricky says, okay, I guess you could like stab someone. And Doug is like, no, Ricky, you fucking idiot. Like, think about the blood. Come on, Ricky. How are you going to kill someone with no evidence? Mm -hmm. And Ricky is like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a master murderer here, you know? Right. And Doug says, okay, I'm going to show you. Get out of the car. Oh, my God. This poor kid. Doug and Ricky get out of the car. Doug demonstrates by putting Ricky in a sleeper hold headlock that he learned in the military. Okay. Doug tells Ricky, if you hold someone in this position for 30 seconds, they will go totally unconscious. If you hold them in this position for longer than 30 seconds... They will die. Oh my God. Ricky is a little shook, but he's too far in now to really get out. Like he already said, yes, he's 20. I'm not making excuses for Ricky, but the levels of manipulation that had to occur to get Ricky to a point to even say yes to the alibi. I was going to say, is he really that far in though? Because like he could still go to the police. You're exactly right. He is. 20 years old. He's not a teenager. And so he while like he's a- impressionable, he's old enough to know that this is really wrong. Yeah. And if those kids are being abused, there are legal ways to deal with that. Yeah, the, the kids can get taken away. The, the wife doesn't have to die. Correct. Doug goes on to tell Ricky how to evade security cameras and disguise himself for the security cameras he is going to be picked up on that he can't avoid. Bro, fuck this, dude. 
On April 15th, 2010, Doug tells Ricky, it's time. They drive halfway between Delaware and Virginia. They trade clothing and phones. Ricky gets the keys to Doug's car and apartment. And Doug gets the keys to Ricky's car. Ricky drives Doug's car to Virginia. And Doug drives to Michigan to, quote, take care of business, as he said to Ricky. Ricky testifies that he knew this meant, Doug meant, I'm going to kill my wife. Oh, my God. I didn't even know who allegedly did it. This plan actually gets foiled because Doug is driving like an asshole and weaving over the lines and he gets pulled over. So now there's a record that he was not in Virginia and it's on camera that he got pulled over, not in Virginia. And Doug basically texts Ricky and was like, oops, I got to come back. So they decide to try again. And this is really where Ricky loses any empathy that I had for him because you got lucky enough the first time that you could have said like, hey, this is a really bad idea. Yeah, like that's a sign right there, you know? So they try again. Doug is at Venus's parents' home and is hiding behind a pile of firewood that they have. Okay. Doug calls the house pretending to be the mailman and says that there's a package that Venus needs to come outside and sign for. Oh my God. So Venus's guard is down and she's still in her pajamas. She just got up. She comes outside and Doug attacks her. Ricky testifies at trial that Doug told him over the phone that the murder was done and he needed to go bury the body. Also confirmed it with his uh, buddy there. Confirmed with Ricky. Yep. This destroys Ricky on the stand. He can barely get this out because he's crying so hard. Because he knows he fucked up. (laughs) He knows he fucked up. And also it probably didn't really hit him that this was real until Doug called and said, I killed her. Yeah, because it all could sound like a joke. Doug actually said, I killed her and her father when he called Ricky. And Ricky said, what the fuck? What are you talking? What? Oh my God. And Doug goes, just, it's a joke. Just calm down. Come on. Um, Cool. And Ricky says, that's not fucking funny. Doug is fucking trash. I think that's when it hit Ricky. Like, uh, oh my God, maybe everything he told me was a lie, actually. Ricky is still in Newport News and is still doing alibi stuff for Doug at this point. Wow. And Doug realizes that he's not going to be back in time for work on Monday. And he has Ricky call his job and pretend to be him and call out sick. Yep. I'm, I'm, I'm like speechless at this moment because yep. I, there's so much that you're telling me that I did not know. And to know that Ricky had so much to do with making sure that Douglas wasn't found out. Right. That's crazy. Right. Especially in the beginning when he was just like, so not wanting to do it. And then he's so deep in now. Yep. Doug's defense at trial is that Ricky is a liar Doug's defense attorney gets very hostile very quickly with Ricky. Doug's defense attorney's first question for Ricky is, your gamer tag is dark bukkake, is it not? Oh, fuck. And then makes Ricky explain what bukkake means. Oh, God. So that poor court transcriptionist. 
Oh, like imagine like you're, you're just taking the notes and then all of a sudden they're like dark bukkake. What? You're like, wait, what? That's spelled with how many? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Doug's defense continues to go on and say, Ricky's testimony doesn't make any sense. And Doug says, I didn't even know Ricky was coming to visit. He just showed up at my apartment and I felt bad and we're kind of friends. So I just let him stay with me, which is totally what you would do if someone random from the internet showed up at your house. Absolutely. I was like, I'm here to visit. You would definitely make up the guest room. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) God. The defense also argues that Doug buying the things from Walmart is not at all suspicious. Okay. And And why? (laughs) Because Doug being on the camera and being so memorable obviously proves that Doug wasn't trying to hide anything. He had the perfect alibi and the perfect confidence because he was so willing to do those things for him. Right. Doug also says that he believes his wife is in hiding, still alive, but hiding from him and her family. And he can't even think about her being dead. He couldn't live with it otherwise if she wasn't just hiding someplace. 2020 does an interview with Doug during this time. And he totally casually is just lying to them and saying, I hope she's alive. I couldn't live with it otherwise. I love my wife. She's just overwhelmed. She got sick of being a mom. All kinds of nonsense that nobody else that knows Venus believes. Doug is found guilty of first degree premeditated murder. And Doug continues to insist that he is innocent for another seven years after this. Doug is sentenced to life in prison without parole. And Ricky, in an agreement for his testimony, pleads guilty to the lesser charge of being accomplice to a violent crime. At this point in time, there is still no sign of Venus's remains. Doug is insisting that he's innocent. And the family is just grieving. So they came up with a decision, but they still haven't found Venus's remains. Correct. They legally declared her dead, Mm -hmm. which they have to do to pursue criminal charges in most states. You can't pursue a murder charge without someone being declared dead. Got it. Four years after the trial, detectives decide to try to talk to Doug again and see if they can get some new information. In the interview, Doug is extremely angry and rude and at points aggressive about his denial of being involved. And he is screaming until he's blue in the face that he was wrongfully convicted and they still don't know who Venus's killer is and they're still out at large. Detectives believe at this point that Doug is never going to tell them where Venus's remains are. And they decide to do some more investigation of their own because even though Doug is in jail and Venus has been declared dead, they don't have closure on the case to know exactly what happened or to be able to give the family her remains for them to respectfully follow her wishes. Mm -hmm. Cops hear that there's a lot of rumors because Doug's sister had poured a new concrete floor in her barn right around the time that Venus had disappeared. 
she tells them that she's actually always been worried that he could have done it. And she just couldn't admit to herself that he could possibly be involved. So she's living in denial. They get a ground penetrating radar machine and go over the concrete and they do not find anything suspicious. Oh shit. She's hugely relieved to find out that nothing is under the concrete, which I imagine had been weighing on her. Oh yeah. But she's very worried because she still believes it's most likely that her brother was involved. I can't imagine that. Doug's sister is actually the one who introduced Venus and Doug. Oh shit. As you can imagine, she carries a lot of guilt for that. That's, that's heavy. At the time of the 2020 interviews, she had been carrying a letter in her purse that she wrote to Venus's mother at the time of the disappearance before they knew what was happening. She had always wanted to deliver it to Venus's mother, but then obviously her brother's involved and she just doesn't know what to do. And so it's really torn apart two families in that Venus's family now no longer has a connection with Doug's side of the family. Yeah. And this tragedy, both families are grieving and there's still no truth. I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of glad to hear that they're both grieving and they're not just like, oh, he's in there and he's innocent. Like you know Chris Watts' I mean? parents? Yeah. Yeah. She also has letters that she wrote for Venus's daughters. And she's very sad about missing the past seven, eight years with her nieces. She Mm -hmm. missed a good chunk of their childhood growing up. Mm -hmm. And previously, their family, they're very close. They end up meeting in person and reuniting. Unfortunately, at this point, Venus's father had already passed away. But the rest of the family comes together and begins to heal and begins to grieve as a blended family. Doug is continuing to insist this whole time that he's the real victim here because he's wrongfully imprisoned. His sister decides, I've had enough of this bitch, and goes to visit him and confronts him and says, we need to know where Venus's remains are. I'm spending time with her mother. I'm a mother now. We need to give them this closure if we can. I need you to say where Venus is. She had badass. <laughs> right? Yeah. Listen, I, Doug. Yeah. <laughs> she I can't imagine doing that, confronting someone like that, especially someone as close as a, a sibling. Right. She lets him stew. And seven years after the trial, he is finally ready to talk. They start negotiating with him. And he has a list of demands that he wants in order to cooperate and share where Venus's remains are. His list includes that he wants to join the canine program at the prison, which is where prisoners prisoners will train canine dogs. Okay. So it's a it's a training program where they get to work with the dogs, but the dogs are being trained for law enforcement purposes. Got it. So not playtime. But still, you shouldn't even get to fucking see a dog, you piece of shit. He also wants to teach in prison. He wants to attend both his parents' funerals when the time comes and they pass. Yeah. And get this, he wants an Xbox. Naturally. Of course course he wants an Xbox. 
He does end up getting most of these requests. They had actually already been planning to buy an Xbox for his unit at the prison for everyone Uh, to have access to. Oh. And the cops say, okay, we can do that. We can meet most of these demands. I was going to say, tell me that he lets everything out before they give him a single fucking thing. The conditions of working with the police means that he has to give information that will lead to discovery of her remains before they give him anything. He starts by saying to the detectives, well, you know, I didn't kill her at home, which just shows that he is a scumbag. He already admit to killing her. No, this is the first time he admits that he's killed her. Yeah, no, no, but that's what I'm saying. The first thing he said to them is, well, you know, I didn't kill her at home. Like, so nonchalant. That's, oh my God, that's, that's psycho. He goes on to describe the murder. He put Venus in the chokehold. She became unconscious and he transported her to a clearing in the woods that he had known about grabbed Venus and put her into the sleeper hold outside of her parents' home until she was unconscious. He then loaded her into his car and drove to a clearing in the woods that he was familiar with. Venus wakes up and starts to argue with him, and the argument culminates in Doug stabbing Venus. Oh, my God. He then buries Venus in this wooded clearing. While having this conversation with the detectives, he shows no sign of remorse and no emotion. It's very matter of fact, just explaining coldly how he carried out the cover up of this crime. It's like a switch that he just turned on. Yeah. In 2018, Doug leads detectives to the spot where he buried Venus, but he won't go too close to it while they are excavating Venus's remains. Fuck, dude. I don't know if it's guilt. I don't know if he was embarrassed because he was big on this image of being this big Marine. and He couldn't bear to see her again. I think it's guilt. Yeah, yeah. that's my guess is maybe he didn't feel guilty because it was out of sight, out of mind for him. Yeah. And he deluded himself that it never happened and he was innocent. Well, from the moment he started the case, he was just like, no, not not me. Yep. Yep. They do find Venus's remains in the woods. The families have a beautiful burial service for Venus and Venus is buried next to her father. They go visit frequently and have flowers and decorate. And Venus is very well remembered by her family and the people who love her. Venus currently still has a memorial Facebook group maintained by her family and members of her community. And they often post their memories of Venus, their pictures. They ask for other people to share their moments with Venus that impacted their lives The two girls are doing great and they play basketball. Okay. The families have blended and really celebrate Venus and her life. And Doug will die in prison as he deserves. Oh, thank God. (laughs) That's the best part about this story, honestly. Yep. That and the fact that Venus was actually able to be honored. For how long? Because you just said 2018? 
2018 is when they find Venus's remains. So the murder happens in 2010. Oh my Doug God. is charged and goes on trial in 2011. And then in 2018 is when he finally takes them. Wow. Yeah. Tell me what you thought was going to happen with this case. So as far as the case itself, when I had first found about found out about it, there wasn't all this information. There was pretty much nothing. Body was not found. Uh, there was no admitting to the murder or any of that. So when I when I looked it up, I was able to find the gamer tags, and there was that was about as much. Like I found out the names, but it was very very vague. Uh, so this is very um, insightful right now, and uh, I'm really glad about the outcome because yeah. I didn't know. I only knew that little tiny bit about it. Um, uh, do you want to hear my theory? Yes. Okay. So I feel like even though now there's so much information and you gave me a lot of information about Ricky that I didn't know, I think that Doug was gay. That's Oh, yeah. I, I wondered that too at first, like the relationship between Doug and Ricky. Yeah. I feel like even if, like, say we're, we're correct, he is gay. Um, it's very possible because there are two men who, like, play Xbox, and why would they admit to that shit? You know what right. I mean? And I feel like, not that he wanted to be with Ricky, but he needed to get Venus out of his life in order to be who he wanted to be. That's I will that- say... During the trial, when the defense attorney is really grilling Ricky, yeah. they bring up all of his porn search history. Okay. Um, that had to be so embarrassing. Oh, I can't imagine. I, and not, I'm not kink shaming anyone. I, we're not saying that Doug is gay or that Ricky is gay. These are yeah. just like theories that, you know, were on yeah. our minds. These are not statements. These are Correct. opinions. Um. I think that it is a bit odd that Doug would reach out to a younger man to have this friendship with and get him in on this plot. I also think the reason that Doug was able to do that is that in my mind, Ricky is a young sophomore in college. He doesn't really know a lot. Maybe he doesn't have a hugely active social life if he's playing for 10 hours a night. Yeah, And he doesn't have any IRL friends. And I could see that really being like, if you got Doug in your ear, like, oh, we're brothers from another mother. You're my best friend. You know, you know, Mm -hmm. they're having these one-on-one conversations for hours or whatever. Um, Those definitely feel a bit odd, but understandable because Ricky kind of seems like an easy target for this. Well, I was going to say, now that I think about it, every other person who we played with had interactions with someone else, but Ricky, because it was me, my cousin, our friend Ninja, who had an entire family, his brother, Ninja's brother, um, another guy who had a husband and wife. Ricky was the only one who was just him. Yeah. So he could have like, recruited him in in a sense oh or like as you said groomed him yeah be like oh this person doesn't have 
connections and maybe they don't have someone who's going to be like, Hey, this is a little bit crazy. You got to chill. The perfect pattern. Yes. Yeah. I do wonder if Doug had thought that he would be able to pin it on Ricky somehow. I think so because like he made them switch clothes and cell phones uh, and cell phones, which yes, it makes sense that you don't want your own cell phone to show up. Yeah. But why take a cell phone at all? Yeah. When you know you're going to buy a track phone. Thank you for talking about your own connection to the case. I know it wasn't like a super close one, but it's still fascinating to me that you knew these characters in any shape, way, shape or form. Yeah. Think how I felt when I first found out. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Thank you for joining me and for recording. This was a lot of fun. Yes, it was. Thank you. Listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really am just amazed by the support that we're getting so far. Like I said at the top, as of the time we started recording, we have 75 streams, which is blowing my mind. I am really having a good time and I hope you're having fun listening and I will see you next week. Bye. friends. If you like the podcast, I would love if you would go ahead and leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the only place that I can actually get ratings and get reviews and get ranked. Please check us out on Instagram at Monsters Walk With Us, all one word. And I'd love if you could send us an email and tell me where you're listening from, maybe suggest a case. The email address is hidden period monsters period walk at gmail.com. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week.